kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. Today we're going to study Acts chapter 12, verses 1 through 24. Things are now primed for the gospel of Jesus Christ and the redemption of the world to God's righteous reign to spread throughout all nations. Saul of Tarsus, transformed from a persecutor and enemy of the cross into an apostle of Jesus Christ, has received his apostolic credentials and teaching and proven himself in years of loyal ministry. Now he is ready to begin the most intense stage of his service to Jesus. Up to this point, Luke has focused primarily on the ministries of Peter and a couple of early Christian evangelists, but on the other side of Acts chapter 12, his full attention will be on Saul. We'll have a special study in a few weeks to discuss why this is. But here in chapter 12, Luke offers one of the last narratives of the ministry of Peter and lays down a powerful principle about the function and future of the kingdom of heaven in this world. Acts 12, verse 1. Now about that time, Herod the king stretched out his hand to harass some from the church. That time is the days when Saul and Barnabas were in Jerusalem, visiting the brethren with money for the relief of the coming famine. The year is 44 AD. We know this because Acts 12 records one of the most well-attested events from that point in history, which we'll discuss at the end of our study today. Herod the king, mentioned here, is Herod Agrippa I. He was the grandson of Herod the Great, who had tried to murder the child Jesus, and a brother to Herodias, who had demanded the head of John the Baptist on a platter. In keeping with the notorious intrigue of the Herod family, Agrippa I's father was murdered by his grandfather, who suspected him of plotting a coup. As a child, Agrippa I was sent to Rome to be brought up and educated, and there became a close friend to the man who would in time be called Emperor Caligula. He spent some time in prison during the reign of Emperor Tiberius, but when Caligula ascended to the throne, Agrippa I was released and given the tetrarchies of his uncles, Philip and Herod Antipas, and a man named Lysanias, thus making him a king. During the reign of Emperor Claudius, the time in which the events of Acts 12 transpire, he was also given the territories of Judea and Samaria and became an independent sovereign. Like his grandfather, Herod Agrippa was a godless and loathsome person, but a shrewd politician. When he received the rulership of Judea, he no doubt wished to win favor with the aristocratic sect of the Sadducees as well as the popular sect of the Pharisees, and one way to accomplish that was to oppose their common enemy, the Christians. When Luke says that Herod stretched out his hand, we might recognize that expression from earlier references to the power of God being exerted in working miracles. Here it refers to Herod using his civil authority to harass some from the church. The word harass means to inflict harm or to do evil against them. But especially noteworthy is the phrase, some from the church. 
This means that the persecution of Herod was not universal against every disciple of Christ. It was targeted. Furthermore, it was in sharp contrast to the earlier persecution of Saul. Saul, as we've already noted several times, focused his aggression against the Hellenist Jewish Christians. The twelve apostles, being Judean Jews, were not targeted and had consequently remained in Jerusalem. In the last few chapters, we've seen them leaving occasionally, but evidently they always return there for a base of operations. Their ministry is still limited to the Jews only, even though Peter has preached to and baptized at least one group of Gentiles. From the beginning, the apostles were generally protected from severe persecution by the Jewish leaders because they feared the people who held the apostles to be prophets of God. But now there was a powerful ruler through whom the Jewish leaders could work who had no fear of God and had already curried great favor with most of the Jewish populace by convincing his friend Caligula not to erect a statue of himself in the Jerusalem temple. So when Luke says he did evil against some of the church, this was specifically a reference to the apostles and perhaps some of the other notable leaders of the community of believers who had now come under particular focus. Verse 2. Then he killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. This is James the Apostle, who was one of the Lord's dearest friends and closest acquaintances during his earthly ministry. He is called the brother of John to identify him thusly and to distinguish him from the brother of Jesus himself, who wrote the epistle of James. James was the first apostle to die in the service of the Lord, and his brother John was the last. Years earlier, the mother of these two men asked Jesus to give her sons positions of prominence at his right and left hand when he received his kingdom. In Matthew chapter 20, verses 22 through 23, we have the conversation that ensued. Jesus answered them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So he said to them, You will indeed drink my cup and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it is prepared by my Father. When Jesus speaks of the cup and the baptism here, he's using metaphors to describe that terrible experience from which he begged God to be delivered if it were possible, that as an innocent man, he would be treated like a criminal and be tortured and killed as though justice demanded it against him. In the purpose of God, it was, in fact, the destiny of these brothers and their apostolic companions other than Judas to sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel and the kingdom of Christ. But here we learn what it means to reign with him. It means to share in his suffering, to be hated and persecuted just as he was. James's brother would later see in a vision the reign of the saints with Jesus, and those who reigned with him were those who had been beheaded for his name. Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. Of course, even when Jesus promised the apostles their thrones and told them that in his kingdom they would be blessed with all the blessings of God, he added the dreadful caveat, with persecutions, Mark 
So what we learn here is that the great victory of the kingdom of heaven that has saturated the testimony of Luke so far and that pulsates through every prophetic utterance of the future of Christ's work in this world does not preclude the persecution and suffering of God's people along the way. In the strange mystery of God's work, the victory of the kingdom is generally propelled forward by seasons of intense bloody persecution against those who love and honor God. One of the early Christians in the time after the apostles said, The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. This is a vital truth to process and to write on our hearts. If we forget it, we will inevitably lose sight of the progress of Christ's rule. We will begin to think that everything is falling apart and failing, when in fact it is unfolding precisely as God planned. Luke wants us to see the death of James as his drinking the cup and being overwhelmed or baptized, immersed in the sea of unjust wrath. That's why he describes the work of Herod as stretching out his hand and killing James with the sword. The meaning is not necessarily that James was actually run through with a blade or beheaded by a sharp instrument. Notice that he does not say with a sword, but more properly, with the sword. And the sword is the symbol of the power God has sovereignly placed in the hands of rulers and civil governments so that they might execute wrath on the one who practices evil. Romans 13 and verse 4. Now, all human civil governments in the present dispensation are themselves wicked, and they are most directly under the influence of Satan. Luke 4 and verse 6. There are no theocracies today through which God works to rule over men with his righteous law. There's nothing in the modern world that is comparable to Israel under Moses or the judges or even King David, nor will there ever be. God's kingdom now and until the end is the kingdom of Christ, which is a kingdom not of this world, John 18:36. But God calls the rulers of the nations his minister, and the Bible says he has appointed or ordained them for the work of opposing evil and protecting good, Romans 13, 1-4. God does this through his providence, but the providence of God does not override the free will and personal volition of mankind, and it is possible for men to do the opposite of what God has appointed them to do. It is possible for those in whose hand God has placed the instrument of justice, the sword, to use it unjustly and even to turn it against God's own people. But when this happens, God does not sit idly by. In this account, we have a specimen of God's reaction to wicked rulers. Verse 3, And because he saw that it pleased the Jews... This endorses our suggestion that the motivation for this persecution was to curry political favor. He proceeded further to seize Peter also. The narrative that follows is both thrilling and interesting, and there's much we could say about it and different suggestions Bible teachers have offered for why it's included in Acts, but I want to consider it with the point we've just made in view. This account demonstrates what happens when the powers of this world abuse their authority and particularly turn it against righteousness, and what happens when the followers of Jesus become participants in his suffering by this process.
Verse 3. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. So when he had arrested him, he put him in prison and delivered him to four squads of soldiers to keep him, intending to bring him before the people after Passover. Peter was therefore kept in prison, but constant prayer was offered to God for him by the church. During the Feast of Unleavened Bread, an execution would have been a distasteful spoilage of the solemnity of the occasion. That's a striking point, because Jesus was killed during this time, and it goes to show that their hatred of him was so intense that the Jews themselves were willing to disregard any sense of decorum to see him dead. Yet the Apostle Peter was spared, at least for a while, by the circumstances of the calendar. All the same, Herod took extreme efforts to use the words of Pontius Pilate to make as sure as possible that Peter would not escape by any means. He put him in a prison behind an iron gate with sixteen guards, and in the next verses we find that he was chained to two of them even while he slept. When Luke states that Herod's purpose was to bring him before the people after Passover, this refers to a public execution. In response to all of this, the church was in constant prayer to God. We've pointed out several times that when Luke says the church was doing something, that doesn't mean that the thousands of Christians in Jerusalem were all in one large group. If, if they ever gathered like that, it would have been a short-lived practice. Persecution does not allow for those sorts of things. The Christians would have met in small house congregations, and perhaps one of these congregations was the group we will find later in this account praying for Peter. In a moment, we will further consider what they would have been praying for, but I want to share a powerful observation from J.W. McGarvey on the difference between the primitive Christians and many who profess Christianity today when we encounter trouble. Here's the quote. When we reflect that the circumstances affecting the disciples were calculated in the highest degree to exasperate them against the murderers of their brethren and stimulate them to active measures for the defense of their own lives, it is exceedingly to their credit that they were engaged in fervent prayer. If they had been taught the modern doctrine that Christians may rightly resist with violence the assaults of tyrannical rulers, and whatever the weakness on their own part may confidently appeal to the god of battles and vindication of their rights, their feelings, and their conduct under those circumstances, we must have expected something far different from what we see. If ever there was an occasion on which the boasted first law of nature, the right of self-defense, would justify resistance to oppression, it existed here. But instead of the passion and turmoil of armed preparation, we hear from the midnight assemblies of the disciples the voice of fervent prayer. Where there is acceptable prayer, there is no passion, no thirst for revenge, no purpose of violence. These men were disciples of the Prince of Peace. That is a striking point. These men were living life in the kingdom, loving their enemies, praying for those who persecuted them. Verse 6, And when Herod was about to bring him out, we presume this means that God left Peter in prison until the very end of the feast, when there was just about no more opportunity for him to be saved. That night, Peter was sleeping, 
bound with two chains between two soldiers, and the guards before the door were keeping the prison. Now behold, an angel of the Lord stood by him, and a light shone in the prison. And he struck Peter on the side, and raised him up, saying, Arise quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. Then the angel said to him, Gird yourself and tie on your sandals, that is, prepare your robe to move quickly, and put your shoes on. And so he did. And he said to him, Put on your garment and follow me. So he went out and followed him, and did not know that what was done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. This language indicates that the angel and the glorious light that accompanied his appearance and everything that took place was invisible to the soldiers. I have no real idea how this might have transpired. Peter thought he was having a vision. The word is horama, from which we get the words panorama, a vision of the whole, or futurama, a vision of the future. But it's possible that the guards themselves were given a false vision, that Peter was still chained to them in the prison, or perhaps they were stunned or put to sleep, but somehow the angel allowed Peter to leave the prison quickly, but at the same time with a remarkable sense of ease. He did not have to leave any possession behind, and as we shall see, he was not spirited out of the jail like Philip from the waters of the eunuch's baptism, but he walked out into the middle of the town. Verse 10, When they were past the first and second guard posts, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord. And they went out and went down the street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter had come to himself, he said, Now I know for certain that the Lord has sent his angel and has delivered me from the hand of Herod and from the expectation of the Jewish people. That is, he realized this was not a vision, but he had been remarkably emancipated from certain death, a death that everyone, believers and unbelievers alike, were expecting. This all by the power of Jesus Christ. Verse 12, So when he had considered this, he came to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose surname was Mark, where many were gathered together praying. We learn in Colossians 4, verse 10, that Mark was Barnabas' first cousin. So this Mary was his aunt. That might mean that Saul and Barnabas were present at this meeting. We'll have more to say about John Mark later. It's not clear whether he chose this house because it was nearby to where he was, or because he wanted a particular audience with the people he expected to find there. But Luke continues, And as Peter knocked at the door of the gate... A girl named Rhoda came to answer. The description of the house indicates that Mary was a wealthy woman. She had a house of two stories with several rooms surrounding a courtyard, and the courtyard was separate from the street by the gate. Luke says Peter was knocking at the door of the gate, and we suppose it was an intense knock because he didn't know how long he might have before the guards realized he was gone and came searching for him. The young servant girl who was posted at the gate as an attendant came to answer, and when she recognized Peter's voice because of her gladness, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter stood before the gate. But they said to her, you are beside yourself, that is, you're crazy, or you're dreaming. Yet she kept insisting that it was so, so they said, it is his angel. Evidently, 
when they were finally persuaded that she had seen something that looked and sounded like Peter, they supposed it was an angel that had been assigned to bear the message concerning him, most likely the news of his death. This is remarkable. It gives us a sense that they were not praying for his release. Perhaps they thought that was too great a thing to expect, that Christ would spare Peter since James had been killed. Likely then they were simply praying for boldness and faith on Peter's part in the face of his execution. But as Paul said, God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we are able to ask or think. Ephesians 3.20 It was not an angel bearing a grim report of Peter's passing. It was Peter himself. And Luke says in verse 16, Now Peter continued knocking. And when they opened the door and saw him, expecting, I suppose, to see an angel, they were astonished. Keep in mind, they expected to see a heavenly messenger. That would have been amazing enough. But to see Peter himself delivered from prison was even more remarkable. Utterly unprecedented. But motioning to them with his hand to keep silent, he declared to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. We suppose this happened in the house rather than at the gate. And he said, Go, tell these things to James and to the brethren. This would be James the elder, the brother of Jesus, who was the most respected of all leaders of the church in Jerusalem. The brethren probably refers to all the Christians in the city, in which case they would have made a large circuit to spread this news to everyone. But James should know first and foremost. And he departed and went to another place. Many Bible commentators have noted the striking similarities between the experience of Peter and that of Jesus himself. Both were arrested during the same time of the year. Both were securely guarded by soldiers, Jesus after his death and Peter in anticipation of his execution. An angel came and saw both out of their holdings and back into the free service of God. As Jesus had presented himself alive to the apostles, who were shocked by the work of God in raising him, so Peter presented himself free to his brethren, who were shocked by the power of God in delivering him. Of course, the parallels are not exact. This was not a mere literary construction on the part of Luke. It was an historic event in the life of Peter. And the reason for the similarities between his experience and that of the Lord is that he had become a participant in Christ's suffering. And those who participate in Christ's suffering will also share in his victory. Jesus allowed his friend and servant James to die. And in time, Peter would share the same fate. But just as all who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, so all who suffer persecution for him will ultimately be delivered from the prison that is stronger than any ever built or guarded by man. Jesus said, the gates of Hades will not prevail against his church, just as they did not prevent him from building it. James and Peter and you and I will rise again with Jesus. And thus Paul could say, if we endure, we shall also reign with him. 2 Timothy 2 and verse 12. After this, 
Peter departed and went to another place. Perhaps he went to Asia Minor or to Greece to continue his apostolic work. We know that over the next seven years, he will visit Antioch of Syria, and he will return to Jerusalem for a special meeting. The persecution would eventually die down, and we'll see how. But even in the midst of it, when God delivers his people, he delivers them to continue their work. Verse 18, Then, as soon as it was day, there was no small stir among the soldiers about what had become of Peter. Again, we don't know their condition during his escape, but evidently they suddenly realized he was gone. But when Herod had searched for him and not found him, he examined the guards and commanded that they should be put to death. The examination was a formal trial, and the guards would have known that had they been found derelict in their duties, they would be killed. Of course, they surely would have explained that something miraculous had happened, and any reasonable man would have had to accept it because there was no alternative. But to accept the miracle was to validate the approval of God on the Christians. So the soldiers were killed. And he, that is Herod, went down from Judea to Caesarea, the luxurious seaport about 65 miles northwest of Jerusalem, and stayed there. Herod had finished his time in Judea. And like carnal, worldly men, he walked away from his sin against God as though nothing had happened. Likely he forgot about Peter and considered the matter settled. But God did not forget about Herod. In verse 20, Luke informs what next occupied Agrippa I's attention, and it had nothing to do with the church or with Jesus of Nazareth. In his mind, it was probably much more important than that. Now Herod had become very angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, but they came to him with one accord, and having made Blastus the king's personal aid, their friend, they asked for peace, because their country was supplied with food by the king's country. This incident, as well as what Luke records next, are discussed in Josephus' history, which is how we know the year was A.D. 44. Evidently, the cities of Tyre and Sidon, coastal cities and major hubs of trade and commerce, had inflated the price of certain vanity items that were imported through them from across the world. In response, Herod had increased the price of food imported to Tyre and Sidon from his own territories. They managed to wangle a deal with Herod through bribing one of his chief assistants and surrendered the feud in Herod's favor. Verse 21. So, on a set day, Herod, arrayed in royal apparel, sat on his throne and gave an oration to them. According to Josephus, this was the second day of sports and games held in Caesarea in honor of Emperor Claudius's birthday. Herod wore a fabulous robe made of silver tissue so that it would glitter in the sunlight and sat in his royal seat at the theater about halfway up in the midst of the crowd. The oration was his acceptance speech of their surrender. And to gain more favor with him and recognize the splendor which he had so obviously put on himself, verse 22 says, And the people kept shouting, The voice of a god and not a man. Perhaps it started in one section of the arena, but it began to spread and grow louder and more enthusiastic. These were not Jews, remember, but Gentiles who were used to worshiping their rulers. Josephus says that Herod did not rebuke them or make any attempt to reject their flattery, 
Luke says, he did not give glory to God. And what follows is two scenes which transpired simultaneously, one in the world of men and the other in the unseen world where God's hand moves. Josephus reported that suddenly Herod grasped his abdomen and buckled over in excruciating pain, pain so great that he told the crowd he was going to die. And he did, after five days of suffering. Luke reports it this way, Then immediately an angel of the Lord struck him, because he did not give glory to God. And he was eaten by worms. The word used here describes grotesque intestinal worms. And he died. God is not mocked. But it was not merely the display of arrogance and idolatry that brought Herod to the grave. He had turned the sword which God gave him to work justice against the servants of Jesus Christ, and that will not stand. Herod died for opposing the kingdom of Christ. But, verse 24 continues, the word of God grew and multiplied. In modern America, Christians are often distressed even to despair when administrations arise that do not work justice and that even seem to oppose the principles of Christianity. And I hear frequent calls for Christians to wake up and pull their heads out of the sand. But I wonder, what do these watchmen expect Christians to do next? To fight? To overthrow the wicked rulers? Well, if we did that, we would cease to be the servants of Christ. The right response is to pray, to go on serving, and to trust that the God of the universe will do what he has always done. He sets up kings and he takes them down. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ will not pass away. It has come into the world, and of its increase there will be no end. The world may rise up and threaten and oppose and even kill, but those who are united with Christ will suffer with him and rise with him on the other side. Whatever happens to us, the final chorus will always be, but the word of God grew and multiplied until all his enemies are under his feet. Thanks again for listening. Please subscribe to keep up with our weekly releases as we continue through the scriptures together. Verse by Verse is brought to you by the 11th Street Church of Christ in Tulsa, Oklahoma. You can contact us at tulsachurchofchrist at gmail.com or visit tulsachurchofchrist.com. From all the dark places of earth's heathen races, oh, see how the thick shadows fly. The voice of salvation awakes every nation, come over and help us, they cry. The kingdom is spreading, oh, tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea. With praising and singing and jubilant ringing, their arms of rebellion cast down. At last every nation, the Lord of salvation, with glory their effort shall crown. 
The kingdom is spreading, oh tell ye the story, God's banner exalted shall be. The earth shall be full of his knowledge and glory as waters that cover the sea.